I wish that I could tell you that Ecclesiastes gets a little bit lighter tonight. Uh, I wish that I could tell you that the title of the sermon is not a heavy one, but it is Tears Under the Sun, From Where Do They Flow? As I thought about as I thought about that title, I briefly thought about just all the loss in my own life, which is really small compared to the loss since the beginning of time. There's a movie called Tears of the Sun. I don't I don't know if you've seen it. It's a it's a movie by Bruce Willis. It's it's a it's a it's a very heavy movie. Um, there's a civil war going on in Nigeria. Uh, there's a doctor there that this Navy, Navy SEAL team sent in to rescue. And upon their arrival, they tell Dr. Kendricks that they're there to take her out of this civil war. She is reluctant to go because she has a mission there. That she is loving and, and serving and, uh, and is full of many, many refugees. And so the lieutenant, Dr. Lieutenant Waters, also known as Bruce Willis, so it has no heart, no compassion, really, for the mission. He has a duty, and that duty is to get her, the American citizen, to safety. So basically, he sort of deceives her, sort of tricks her into bringing some of the refugees with her as they go to the extraction point. They basically leave all the refugees, fly her out of the country, and as they're flying out, they fly back over the mission and it's on fire, and there's nuns, and there's priests, and there's bodies just everywhere. And for the first time, Lieutenant Waters is faced with the tragic reality of oppression. And there's something about this scene that he cannot ignore any longer. So he orders the helicopter to spin around and they go back and the whole movie is about them rescuing these refugees and getting them to the safe border of Cameroon. You know, we've said several times the preacher can be trusted in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's not a pretender. He's not a chameleon. He's not concerned with re-election. He's not concerned with becoming the pastor emeritus at the church he's pastored for 50 years. He's not going to give us trivial answers for deep, complicated life issues, trivial answers for complicated life under the sun. In fact, if you're only looking for quick answers, you might want to go to another church if you go to this preacher's church. So Solomon is honest. He's honest about his own tears under the sun, and he's honest about the tears of others. You know, basically, as we sort of recap some of the things that Ben talked about last week in verses 1 through 3, as though the preacher doesn't have all the answers to life's problem, as Ben said last week, he's not willing to stick his head into sand and deny that they exist. 
I think that's one of the problems that we have as Christians sometimes. If we don't have the answers, we don't feel like that we can be honest with people. You know it's alright to say that I'm, I'm broken or you're broken and I don't, I don't really know what to do about it. But the preacher is not afraid to say I don't have the answers, but I'm not going to deny that there's a problem. He's willing to see, he's willing to observe the hopelessness that oppression brings, and he's willing to confess that it often leads us to contemplate, to, to wrestle with, is life even worth it? I mean, is life really even worth living? Might it have been better to have not been born? I don't know, maybe us in America have not struggled like that. Maybe we, went, we haven't had such a tragedy in our lives that we would say life is just not worth it. I was reading a little bit about the war in the Congo, civil war in the Congo. It lasted five years. Five years. 5.4 million people dead. That's five years at 3,000 people a day. I think if I had gone through that, maybe I, like the preacher, I might say, maybe it had been best that I might be born. The thing that is most shocking to me about this passage and about the preacher's honest eyes, and about his willingness not to pull any punches, is the fact that he himself is at the top of the food chain. He's the king. He's the great king. If you look at Ecclesiastes 1, 12-15, it says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And he goes on to say, I, the king, cannot straighten all that is twisted in all the corruption that exists in life under the sun. Though he doesn't offer a fix, at least he's honest enough to name the brokenness in the world, right? Even if he's at the top of the world. How many preachers, how many presidents do you feel like would acknowledge that? Hey, the world is broken. It's broken unrepairably. Oppression Tragedy, tragedy, and by the way, I'm in charge. The preacher is an honest person, and we can trust his words. You don't find many people who will be honest, even if it reflects poorly upon them. There are things in our world, there are things in my life, there are things in your life, cannot be fixed. You hear me? There's things in your life, there's things in my life, there's things in the world that cannot be fixed. And there's two options. We can either be like the prostitute and run and hide in shame, or we can be like the priest and pretend in pride that we can climb the ladder. 
that we're okay. But that's not the way of the preacher. Think about these verses. You might have faith that can move a mountain, as Matthew 26, 11 says, but know this, the poor will always be among you. You cannot fix the unconsolable things. Only Jesus can. Do you know that church? Do you know that Christian? Do you know that you can't fix the broken places of your life? Do you know that you can't repair it all? You can't fix it all? You can't make it all better? Think about the unconsolable things of a mother who loses a child. What will you say to her to make it better? The suicide of a friend, the news of a friend being diagnosed with stage four cancer. What are you going to say to fix that? More than that, are we willing to own our part? The part that we have played, the part that you and I have played with the tears that flow under the sun. Not are we just willing to observe and see it, but we, are we willing to acknowledge that we are part of the problem? Are we willing to confess that we too have tried our hand at being like God, like Adam and Eve? Will we acknowledge that we, like in the days of the book of Judges, we sort of enjoy being a law unto ourselves? Can we attest that we too have committed treason in our hearts as we have exchanged the treasure of God for images, that we have shoveled our fair share of broken cisterns, that we have fashioned one or two golden idols ourselves. So not just can we acknowledge the oppression under the sun, but can we own it? Can I own it? That we, like Herod, have enjoyed the crowds crying out, He's like a God. Do you believe that? Oppression. How honest are we? How honest are we as Christians? How honest are we as a community about our brokenness, about our tears under the sun? and our inability to fix it. Listen to this quote from Benedict Ward. This sort of sums up sometimes how we as Christians relate to trying to fix it all. I've seen a man on the bank of the river buried up to his knees in mud, and some men came to give him a hand to help him out, but instead they pushed him further up to his neck. Doesn't that sound like the church? Doesn't that sound like us as Christians sometimes? We, we go to help people and we find ourselves giving these trivial and trite answers to real oppression, to real suffering. Instead of helping them, we end up pushing them. What should the church do with brokenness? It's really simple. We should just bring one another to Jesus. 
Instead of me trying to help you see your sin, how to get out of your sin, the best thing I can do for you is to bring you to Jesus, just like oftentimes people did with the blind and the sick and the lame. Isn't it interesting that God would take things that we could not fix? We can't fix blindness. And the only answer was not tell him to pick himself up by his bootstraps, not give him a trite, trivial Bible verse, but was to bring him back to the gospel, to bring him back to Jesus and say, Jesus, I cannot fix me, nor can I fix him. Have mercy, Jesus. Have mercy. You know, you might ask, where do the headwaters of oppression start? Where did they begin in our world? Where did they begin in my life? Where did they become such a strong current all over our world of suffering and oppression and the caste system and abuse and human trafficking? Where did that come from? We have to start with what is sin. Sin is the preferring of other things to that which is the highest good. So it's basically taking the highest good and replacing it with secondary things. So taking God, like they did in the garden, Adam and Eve, the highest good, the greatest good, the God of all gods, true, holy, righteous, and trying to replace that with something secondary. If there is no God, then anything is permissible. You realize that? If there's not a God, then anything is permissible. If there's not a God who is good and loving and the plumb line and the standard, anything is permissible in life. And there's no rhyme or reason that you can give to people why that's not true. If oppression is the abuse and use of others for our promotion, for for my glory. Then the opposite of that is the seeking for others and yourself what is the highest good. Do you know what that, 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 that's what it means to love people, is to want what is best for them. And if we believe in this God who is ultimately good, then what is best for all of us is that he rules and reigns. That's the reason that when Jesus comes back and he is put to the place where he should be, everything will be right. Everything will be right. Man, what does that say about evangelism? And how passionate we should be about bringing people to the greatest good. So the only way to overcome oppression in the world in our lives, in the lives of my family, in the lives of my community, is to hold up in my own life the greatest good. You see, education, health care reform, political leaders, whatever it may be, etc., 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 cannot bring us back cannot reconcile us back to the greatest good. Only Jesus can do that on the cross. 
So moving forward, the preacher is going to set before us a few things. He's going to tell us a few things that cause the rivers of oppression to rise. He's going to set before us a few things that we need in this life of tears under the sun if we're going to finish the race and complete the task. But he first wants us to know that oppression exists in the world because we all have left God. Verse 4 says this, And I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. And this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Rivalry, competition, envy, jealousy, all stoke the fires of oppression. So instead of Cain loving his brother Abel, he slaughters him. Instead of Lamech enjoying and cherishing women, he uses them for his own gain. Lamech is a descendant of Cain. Instead of using God's word to forgive 77 times 7, Lamech says, may I be avenged 77 times. If the ultimate goal in life if the ultimate aim of our souls is to be at the top and just fill in the blank at the top of your class, at the top of your career, at the top of the food chain, looking down at all those who desire to topple you, if that's what you want, if that's what you desire, to make a name for yourself, to leave your mark in the world, to build your tower so that none may forget your name, then you are a complicit contributor to oppression. And we are all guilty. And we are all guilty. Because when we lift ourselves to the place that only God deserves to be, then the best is not in the place that it should. And we all suffer. Listen to the great Green Bay Packer coach, Vince Lombardi. He comments and expresses this distortion of competition and pursuit of the top of the mountain. Listen to what he says. Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. To play the game, you must have fire in you. And there is nothing that stoke the fires like hate. Man, that sounds like Cain, doesn't it? But that's what we believe in America. That's what we believe in America. You see, when your, your worth and your value, when your status, when your identity is determined by wins and losses and titles and promotions, you're willing to go so far as to kill, to have it be secure. Why is that? Because that's all you have to sustain you. That's your very being. Listen to what James 4 says to us. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. 
You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Don't you know that friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God? Then some of us might say, well, if competition and rivalry are contributors to the business of oppression, so is apathy and laziness. Verse 6 tells us the answer to that problem. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil in a striving after the wind. Better to be content with God and at peace than grappling and striving for the top of the mountain. A German bishop said this, Remember you must never use your position to lord it over the heathen. Instead, you must, be, you must humble yourself and earn their respect through your own quiet faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. The missionary must never seek, seek anything for himself, no seat of honor, hope, or fame. Like the cab horse in London, each of you must wear blinkers that blind you to every danger, to every snare and conceit. You must be content to suffer and to die and be forgotten. Basically, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's the life that the Christian is called to. Eric Lindell, that great British gold medalist of 1924 who refused to run on the Sabbath day, so we ran a different race the next day and still won the gold medal. He says, in the dust of defeat as well as in the laurels of victory, there's a glory to be found if you've done your best. See, that's not, that's not what we teach in America. We teach win at all costs, right? Compete at all costs. He goes on to say, many of us are missing something in life because we are after the second best thing. And that's our own glory. He says, we're missing something in life because instead of being about God's glory and the greatest good, we're about our own glory and our own good. And therefore, we miss out on the treasure hidden in the field for fool's gold. Next, the preacher says in verse 7 through 8, And again, I saw the vanity under the sun. One person who has no other. This individual has no one, no community, no son, no brother. Yet there's no end to all this toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so they never ask. He never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is vanity and an unhappy business. Are you, am I, are we willing to ask to pause in the busy life that we have, just to pause for a moment and say, why am I doing what I'm doing? To ask why. The mindless, unquenchable desire for more. It's the slogan, he who dies with most toys wins. 
How much money is enough? Just one more dollar. If one handful is good, then two handfuls is better. To be rich is good, but to be filthy rich is even greater. Instead of John Piper's slogan, the only reason to have millions is to give millions away. We are like the parable found in Luke 12, 13 through 21. Listen what Jesus says. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax and eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards the Lord. You see, what we don't realize is that rivalry and isolation and a striving for more and more and more, it leads to isolation. It leads to the destruction of community. Like to want to be at the top of the mountain destroys community. I'm not talking about working at things with all of your heart. I'm not talking about being faithful to God. I'm talking about wanting to be God. Think about it. Adam was willing to take the very bone of his very bone, the very flesh of his very flesh, and throw her into the bus because he had forsaken what is best. You see, when we get stripped of our worth and our dignity and our beauty, it leaves us insecure, it leaves us naked, and in our nakedness we'll do anything to hide our guilt, even kill. God created us for community. He created us to be together. But you can't be together unless God is the greatest good. Right? I can't be honest with you guys unless I know that God covers me in His righteousness. We can't be honest as a community unless we believe that Christ's righteousness covers us fully and completely. We can't be a community if we're always trying to one-up one another. We're always trying to build a bigger castle. We're always trying to do more. Envy, jealousy, competition, mindless materialism destroys communities and families and churches and businesses and neighborhoods. You see, the gospel frees us from that, church. When God is where he's supposed to be, we are free. You don't have to chase freedom any longer when you're free. Verse 13 through 16 tells a little story about a king who no longer knows how to hear. He knows, no longer knows how to listen to others. He no longer knows how to take advice. 
And when we as a community stop listening to one another, we stop hearing one another because we're so often scrambling for the top of the mountain. And we're so often after the next great thing. We quit seeing each other. We're left alone in isolation. You see, God frees us from the pursuit of making our own identity out of the smoke and mirrors. Isn't it a tireless pursuit? I know we've all been there, but isn't it a tireless pursuit to pretend? Like, isn't it a tireless pursuit to like pretend that you have it all together, that you have fixed it all or you can fix it all? You see, Jesus... And his righteousness frees us to be in community to one another. And when you're in community with one another, then not only can you fight together against the oppression of the world, but we can help one another fight against the oppression in our hearts. You realize you're under oppression? You realize that because you live in a fallen world that you're under oppression? And that God put us in community so that we can point one another back to Jesus every Sunday that we can point one another back to what Christ has done on the cross. Do you know that's how you overcome oppression? Is to help one another get Jesus back on the throne of each other's heart. You know, every week we go astray. I don't know if you've ever seen the little evangelism tool, but it has the big S on the throne itself, and then the, and then the other little throne, it has the cross. Well, every Sunday we should help one another dethrone ourselves and re-enthrone our King. Did you know that that's how you overcome oppression? Not by hiding. Not by hiding because you think you're the only one going through depression. Not by hiding because your marriage is tough and you think everyone else's is good. No. No. That's not what the preacher says. He makes it a point to say, I see, I see. I see. I don't have all the answers, but I see the oppression in the world. And Jesus in community is the answer to overcoming it. Living life together and fighting against oppression while acknowledging we are contributors to it it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to keep hoping in God's mercy while you keep an eye to heaven. But until then, we've got to lift Jesus high, confess our sins to one another, cover one another with the gospel of God's grace, and listen and see one another, but see one another in Christ. I was trying to think if I've ever been a part of a church It was just real. Real about their own sin, their own struggle, and their own battles, and their own brokenness. I'll read in closing this quote about Christian community. Listen to this. 
Christian community is not an ideal we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. You hear that? It's, it's not an ideal we have to realize. It's a reality that God created in Christ which we get the privilege of participating in. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all community is Jesus Christ alone. Did you hear that? It says, the more clearly we all understand and recognize that the ground and the strength and promise of all community is in Jesus Christ alone. We have one another because we have Christ. The only thing that makes any of us fit to be in this community is Jesus. The more calmly we recognize this, we will learn to think about our community and pray for it and hope for it and not try to fix it. You hear that? That's what's wrong with most communities. Is we're all trying to fix each other. And none of us can even fix ourselves. If we would just recognize and realize that Jesus is the only thing that makes our community community, and the only way you got into the community is through Christ, then every time we see oppression in one another's life, we bring one another to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, your word is so true. And God, we just need help to every day and to seek the greatest good, not only for ourselves, but for those around us. God, that every day that we would seek to see you in the place that you should be, high and lifted up. And God, in putting you in that place, God, jealousy and pride and envy and mindless materialism, God, are consumed. And community is made strong. Isolation is destroyed in genuine, honest hope and trust in Jesus becomes our all in all. God, would you help us to be that kind of Christian, the kind of Christian that's not afraid to observe and see and name all the hardships, not only in our world, but in our lives, and say, hey, look, I, I don't have all the answers but I can take you to the one who does. God, would you rescue us from trying to be our own saviors? Would you rescue us from trying to save one another? Would you help us just to be still and wait upon your return? Wait for the king and pray for the king to be seated on his throne so that all things are made new. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.